we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. In this episode, we have Vernita Mayfield with a focus on cultural competence, specifically understanding confronting bias in schools. Dr. Vernita Mayfield hails originally from Los Angeles, California, where she began her career teaching elementary school. As a teacher, Mayfield found her first love serving and supporting students who have been historically marginalized. Since then, she has continued to do so through numerous positions of service, including secondary school principal, researcher, and lecturer, and educational consultant at the state and national levels. In 2012, she founded Leadervation Learning to support organizations seeking to build leadership capacity, particularly in marginalized communities. The company evolved into a vehicle supporting leaders at all levels to understand and dismantle inequitable systems and organizations by building the cultural competence of staff, which we're going to talk about now. We hope you enjoy this episode. Also, don't forget to like, share, and follow. You can always get more by following the schoolhouse302.com. Go to the site, click on follow. All right, without further ado, Vernita, thank you for joining us today on Focus Ed. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very delighted to be here. And it's so wonderful to have an opportunity to, to converse around racism, bias, privilege, and certainly cultural competency. Absolutely. We actually want to jump right in. You wrote a book called Cultural Competence Now. We want to start there with the book and then dive into some of your experiences in schools. Um, please tell us why you wrote the book, what it means to be culturally competent from your perspective, and what you might want educators to take from it. We have a live studio audience today, but we're going to have listeners across the country checking this out, and people want to know. Okay, you, you asked me three questions, and I want to make sure I got them correctly. Why I wrote the book, what it means to be culturally competent, and I'm not sure I got number three. I kind of got lost thinking about one and two. What's the primary message that you want leaders to take away from, from, the, from your work? Awesome. Okay. I wrote the book because after 30 years in educational context, I was in numerous uh, situations in which I would see um, peers uh, and uh, that um, responded to people of color or students of color in a way that lacked cultural competency and understanding of cultural and racial differences. 
um, white educators uh, primarily were oblivious to the perpetuation of systemic and institutional racism in organizations and might say or do things that were culturally insensitive or racially insensitive uh, and, and would behave in, in ways that sometimes would be uh, inappropriate. And so I knew that for the most part, these were good folks who were trying to do their very best work on behalf of students, but just did not have the background knowledge and understanding of how systemic and institutional racism has manifested within educational settings. And they did not necessarily have the skills or the, the behavioral uh, knowledge on, on how to behave in such a way as to be culturally competent or that even the dispositions in how to interact with parents or with students of color. And so I wrote this book for my peers and uh, to be able to understand better the experiences that students of color have in schools and to be able to make that those experiences more equitable and fair and inclusive for all students. Um, I, so I wrote it for generally well-meaning educators who, who just need more background. So to answer your second question, which is what exactly is cultural competence? Well, I define it as uh, a way to interpret uh, cultural values and beliefs that influence your conscious and unconscious behaviors, the understanding of how inequity has and continues to be perpetuated through socialized behaviors and the knowledge and determined disposition to disrupt those inequitable practices to create more equitable uh, opportunities for students and peers of color. Thank you, Vernita. I, I think most of us can resonate uh, well with what you're describing. Um, I, I wanna highlight two things you mentioned. Um, one being that you know, this is well-intentioned people um, that lack skills. I think that's an important concept here. Like this is a skill-based approach you're talking about. That, that leads me to my question, you know, knowing that it's well-intentioned, that they may lack specific skills, what is a good entry point for school leaders to tackle this issue, to start beginning these conversations, um, to make sure that it really does begin to, to do what you, you said, which is to disrupt. And that's the goal, to disrupt, but to educate and provide skills. Where would be a good entry point for leaders to begin this so they can begin this, this work? Well, that's an excellent question. The way the book is structured, it's uh, there's four different steps, progressive steps, that theoretically an individual would take to be able to get to a point where they are culturally competent and advocating and leading and an ally for their students of color. Um, and so uh, those are all in chapter one and the first step, which is uh, awaken and assess. This is an opportunity for uh, the educators to uh, really grow knowledgeable around their own values and beliefs and how they were socialized and what biases that they might bring as a result of the narratives that they've heard within their own cultures. I really embrace cultural competency in part because cultural competency 
really looks at the environment in which racism is perpetuated, which is within our culture. Within our culture, negative narratives have been passed from generation to generation that tell these stories and these narratives about who is to be accepted and who is not, who is to have opportunities and who does not, who is to have access and who does not. And so we're talking about what are these narratives that people have told about people of color or other cultures and examine those, what biases have we adopted as a result of the messages that we've heard in our culture, whether that's in media or whether that's from our family or what have you. and then how that is perpetuated in the culture. And so now let's talk about how do we change these narratives and change our thinking and be able to address and dismantle these systems that continue to perpetuate it. Oh, so to get back to those steps. So the Waken and Assess, we look at those values and beliefs that people have adopted and accepted as a result of being within this culture. And uh, step two, which is apply and act, looks at, okay, knowing my values, my beliefs, my biases, how does that impact my work in classrooms? And how do I make uh, adopt different practices to be able to create a more equitable environment within my own classroom or within my own practices, say, as an educator or an administrator? And step three, which is analyze and align, this is where we're dismantling those systems that are inequitable. We're looking at the policies, we're looking at the procedures, we're looking at the practices that continue to perpetuate inequity in systems. And finally, step four, which is advocate and lead, we're looking at how do I then uh, become a leader, an advocate, an ally for others. So basically, what the entry point for an administrator who is trying to lead in this effort, I would say would be at step one. Let's get folks talking about, okay, what is it that I am not even cognizant of in terms of my own belief systems and the own, my values? How am I exercising that in my own practice? What biases am I already bringing to this position and how does that manifest in my practices and in my interactions with students and with parents. And I think that's a good starting point is to start with self. It's a powerful place to start with self-reflections. I love that you talked about kind of understanding your own narrative and the narrative that you've been around and the, and the steps are phenomenal. Our listeners always like that, that practical way to get at the problem you've used words and this is really about leadership you've used words like act disrupt apply we um we we teach using the peace all standards and in there we use the word confront and alter i know you're a proponent of equity audits this concept of using data to drive equity in the conversation can you talk to uh the listeners a little bit more about how that works and what you would say about that well, certainly one of the strategies that I like to use when I'm working with organizations is starting with an equity audit. And what we do is we come into an organization and we look at everything around the organization, the policies, the practices, uh, 
the, the rules that are in place, the culture of the organization and the climate. We collect data and we look at it through an equity lens. And we basically examine things like um, the student the, and parent and uh, uh, staff handbook. What policies are in place there that might create some uh, inequities for staff of color or for students of color? We talk with the human resources department and we look at what are some of the recruitment practices that they have around recruiting uh, staff of color and uh, what are the disciplinary uh, actions that have been taken and what is the retention and what things are in place to ensure that staff of color are uh, readily accepted into the environment. It's one thing to uh, hire a, a staff of color. It's another thing entirely to make sure that the place is inclusive and welcoming. So we look at academic data to look at achievement gaps. We look, we talk to interviews. We have focus groups with uh, students and parents and the board and alumni. And we examine what their experiences have been uh, within the school system. So we get a complete and total picture around how equity is exercised in experiences of people that have gone through the system, uh, what those their experiences are within them. And then we can come back with research-based recommendations uh, on how to proceed in creating a more equitable and inclusive environment. At that point, we, we also um, prioritize because it's one thing to get a list of recommendations. It's another thing entirely to say, here's a list of things, but here's where you need to start. This is the most important piece. And then you need to tackle this. And then you need to tackle that. So it's a very strategic way when you're looking at implementing uh, more equitable uh, practices in a school or in an organization. Where do, let's start with the data. Let's see what the data says about how we're doing in terms of retention of students of color or faculty of color or, or whatever the situation, how are we doing in terms of academics? How are we doing in terms of say opportunities and access and how students are able to access those opportunities? How many students are in our AP classes and how many students are retained in them? I mean, we'd look at the entire total picture. So it's a great data-driven way to look at how do we begin this equity work and where do we begin given that we're going to start doing this? I think beginning with the data, being a data guy myself, um, <clears throat> really helps quell a lot of the arguments. Um, Vernita, I also want to go down this road a little bit, if you would. We can't deny the emotional response to this work. It is challenging work. Mm -hmm. I, I will say from my own experience and talking to educators in Delaware and across the country, the murder of George Floyd has definitely changed the narrative though. Most people have, I believe, that have embarked on this, this work. Um, it was an awakening in many ways that, mm -hmm. you know, we may have thought we were making some progress, but, you know, we're not there. And so, what do you see as some of the greatest obstacles when schools begin this work? And what advice would you have to administrators? You know, here are some pitfalls you can avoid knowing how 
difficult it is to talk about things like white superiority, white fragility, you know, <clears throat> omission of, of black achievement. You know, there's a lot of tough conversations. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we wrestle with that? How do we confront it to make sure we're being productive? Okay, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different strategies for doing this and a lot of them are outlined in, in the book. Um, I would say that um, one, so I'll, I'll just give you a few. One, you set, set some goals. So if you don't do uh, uh, an equity audit, you've still got to look at where do we start with this work and what are our goals? We need concrete, measurable goals. What do I want to see in a year? Part of the reason why this work has been so difficult is that um, people have you know, thought about, let's start this work. And um, sorry, I'm trying to shut up my phone. <laughs> but we've thought about, people are thinking about, how do I start this work? But I don't know whether or not I made progress. I don't, you know, we can talk and talk, but how do we know that we're actually getting somewhere? So um, one of the things I would say is set some goals. Now, this particular cultural competency continuum that's in the book gives you a way to be able to set goals. It gives you a structure for those goals. These are specific behaviors I would expect to see, say, after six months or a year. And though you can go with the behaviors and the dispositions uh, that are outlined here, the kind of knowledge that we need to know, you can set goals around that. Um, by the end of the, say, year two, Everyone should have a basic understanding, say, of structural uh, racism and what that looks like and how to recognize it and how it manifests. So set some goals and then a way to be able to measure whether or not we've met those goals. And that's part of the structure of this book is we've designed a way for you to be able to do that so you can see here we're making some progress. Here's what we ought to be able to know. Here's a basic minimum that anyone ought to know about, say, white privilege or bias or whatever. So I would say that's important, set goals. The other thing is uh, work on creating a caring community. And now some people will say, you know, caring community is, uh, is fine, but there's other more difficulties that come with talking about race, and that's true. But I would advocate for this being part of the strategy because, because race conversations or conversations about racism can be so difficult it's helpful if you are within an environment that is not toxic. And that would be true for almost any type of initiative that you would want to implement in an institution. The, the implementation of an initiative is going to go much smoother if it's within a caring and supportive environment. So I would say that that's also important. The other thing is to set norms about how we're going to have these conversations. Um, I have a set of norms that I typically like to start with, um, you know, speak your own truth, uh, whatever you have to say, say it kindly, make sure every voice is heard. Um, and uh, I, so I, I have some standard ones, but I would say as a group, let's decide, how are we going to have this conversation? How are we going to treat each other? What are the norms that we're going to put in place and a norm keeper? I have an individual who says, you know, who calls someone on the norms hey, uh, we've all agreed that this is the way we're gonna talk and this is the way we're gonna converse and this is the way we're gonna interact with each other. And let's all uh, adhere to the norms that we have all agreed to. 
So that's another way. Um, another thing I'd like to put on the on this uh, uh, put on the table are the mechanisms that have been historically used to disrupt and to deter and to avert conversations about racism. And you spoke to this a little bit about white fragility. And we talk about, okay, look, here are some behaviors that have typically and traditionally gotten in the way of people's ability to be able to make progress on conversations about race and name them, silence, uh, gaslighting. Uh, <laughs> see, I can, I, I don't know why it, it escapes me now. I, I, I have, a, there's a gazillion of them. Um, uh, crying, uh, anger, um, averting the conversation or trying to change the conversation. But put those all on the table. These are the behaviors that have historically been used. These are mechanisms that have been used to uh, divert conversations on racism. Let's talk about what we're going to do if we see them. Now, it, just assuming that we, we won't see them, but let's say that these are typically ones that have been able to do this. These are ones we want to avoid, but let's name them and put them on the table and make them transparent. And let's also talk about how we're going to respond if we see these behaviors or these mechanisms in play. Because if we should, we should not allow it to be able to take us off track of what we're trying to do. And, uh, and then I would take me to my last recommendation. Just, you know, there's so many more I could go into that it would probably take most of this half hour. But um, my last one is to um, focus on the children and on the students. This must, this work must be about our students. It can, uh, you look at your vision or your mission statement and what you're trying to do in terms of creating a more equitable, inclusive environment for students. And let's focus on the reason why we're meeting, the reason why we're talking about data, the reason why we're examining our policies and practices. All this is grounded in our work in creating a more just and civil and equitable learning environment for students. So when it, the conversation may tend to go off track, bring back the students at the center of this conversation. And let's talk about our real reasons for continuing to progress in this work and continuing the conversation even when it gets difficult. Well, I love that. Continue the conversation even when it gets difficult. That's a really great point. It's also a nice segue with two things. One, Joe and I are presenting later this evening with Michael on the concept of a community of support and care. And I like how you drove that home with focusing on kids. Here's a question for you. If you're going to improve the student experience in every school, uh, what would what you want seen done? Is there something that you would say would improve all kids in all schools? This needs to happen. Is, is this ide idealistically like, or is this like practically? Cause I could go either way. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear both idealistically and practically the sky's the limit, but we want to put things into practice. Okay. Um, idealistically, if I, you know, was, in a position to, to do this kind this make this kind of decision. I would love to see students travel as a part of students' experience in schools. I think that 
every child should experience another culture, people, language, practices, architecture, uh, background in, 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 in other countries and with other kinds of peoples. And I think that that would go a long way toward helping them to be more empathetic and understanding and accepting of various kinds of cultures and people. So if, you know, if I rule the world, I would see to it that every child had regular travel experiences to be able to immerse themselves in other cultures to become uh, more, so just more accepting and more understanding about other kinds of people. Um, so that's my idealistic kind of uh, solution to, uh, to some of this. Um, now on a very practical level, um, I would say that I would love to see uh, racism, bias, privilege, those sort of conversations be less taboo. I would like to see regular conversations in schools about things like racism and the history of it, the systemic nature of it, how it manifests in society, how it impacts students and children and families. And I would love to see more conversations making this transparent, not something that's hidden on the table, but it, hidden under the table, but on the table. Let's, let's talk about what's been going on and how it has been impacting the lives of people of color and their families. Bernina, I think both, both are very, very powerful. Um, it would it'd be nice to see if we could do something with traveling though. Um, you did remind me of a time I actually took a group of students uh, fishing out of Rock Hall, Maryland, mm -hmm. um, all inner city students, all <clears throat> what we would you know classify as at risk from a poverty standpoint, et cetera. Um, and, they had a great time on the boat, but it was eye-opening only because when one young man, cat, and it was all males that I took out, all African-American males, one young man casted the rod. He threw the whole rod in the water. Oh, wow. Everything. And he just, he had never fished before. And right, right. It's amazing when you were talking about some of those travel and experiences in Richmond, what we may take for granted. Right. Truly take for granted and not realize what's um, just not a part of some of our students' lives and that we would naturally think are. So um, I think that would be something to focus on and could be incredibly powerful. Vernita, you have a tremendous amount of experience um, in education. Um, you're diverse yourself, you know, being from Los Angeles and, and then, you know, moving about. What's a, a favorite resource that you find to support teaching, learning, um, or leaders in schools? Well, believe it or not, it's really ASCD. I have been accessing their books and their resources since my second year of teaching. And that was many, 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 many moons ago. Um, and I have uh, attended uh, many of their conferences as both a participant and as a presenter. And uh, I find their materials, you know, top notch and um, and, and I find their conferences useful. It's where I've made some great connections with uh, colleagues. So ASCD is one. Um, I also am a fan of Phi Delta Kappen and their publication, and I read that frequently as well. Just a follow-up to that, Vernita, is there anybody outside of education who you would say 
you know, this is a person to follow. Their work is making a, a meaningful impact. Uh, yeah, um, I follow New York Times writer Nicole Hannah, I think it's Nicole Hannah Smith. Um, she is the author of the 1619 Project that traced the history of people of color from the start of the first slave ships when they arrived in this country. And it's a really powerful uh, piece. And um, she has a curriculum that goes along with it. So I, 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 I love to follow her work. And she's also right now working on another project uh, with Oprah Winfrey in which they're going to bring this to life and, and film. And um, so I, I do, I, uh, she's outside of education. And I, I really enjoy, thank you, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Thank you, Tika, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I love to, to, to see some of the things in the commentary that she has. So she's one person outside of it I follow. Thank you for that. We'll, we'll reference um, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the show notes so other people can find her work. Um, it does also, you bring up a good point though, when we talk about racism and, and the history of racism, we can take it on a very simple step. I mean, even we're coming tonight from, from Delaware, there's its own history in Delaware with the, the first people in um, Delaware and how this community was started and so forth. There's nothing wrong with us starting to uncover that despite some of the original fears of what does it mean about us or our state and so on. Um, but I think it leads to the healing and then the progress, Vernita, that is really a thread throughout all of your work and what you're describing here um, that can help us quite a bit um, in reaching some goals. Let me ask you this, um, what's the title of a book or something you wish something someone would write about that hasn't been written written yet or that needs to be um, really extended. Well, can I tell you about my next book? Absolutely. <laughs> and we did not tee that up, audience, but it works out sometimes. <laughs> as as it so happens, I'm writing the book I have not seen. I'm interviewing children and students. And um, we're talking about how racism has impacted them. And I'm taking that and I'm also pairing that with how, what the implications are for social and emotional learning in schools. So the book that I, that I think I, I need to see next that I think will be supportive next for, for educators is understanding how racism is is influencing and impacting students on a regular basis. What experiences are they having that maybe you're not hearing? What experience have parents been having that maybe you're not hearing and understanding? What, what have we been telling each other that we need to, to put out there on paper and pen and let you know what's been going on? And then when we look at the structure of schools, what are the implications when we're looking at teaching and social emotional learning, how does racism connect with that? And how do we understand how teaching social emotional behaviors is directly connected with some of the experiences that children of color have in schools? How can we rectify that? Well, we certainly like the, like the reality of that, the authenticity and the candor that that will bring. We'll definitely have to do a round two 
when that book comes out. Um, we want to be uh, thankful of your time. And uh, Vernita, this has been great. We're, it's been so awesome to reconnect with you. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up? Um, no, I want to thank you very much for your time. I want to encourage anyone out there who is beginning this work in equity and is beginning now to talk about cultural competency or anti-racism or bias or white privilege, any of those conversations, they are vital to your work as an educator. For far too long, we have sidestepped these conversations. And uh, I hope that this, this spring, the, the, the events that unfolded have awakened individuals to the importance of educators being knowledgeable and, and taking actionable steps to dismantle the systems of, that have been really detrimental for students of color in school systems. It's time to recognize and acknowledge that racism does exist and it has been existing in school systems and let's address it for the sake of students and parents and teachers and educators. Thank you. Thank you for that. We, you heard it here on Focus Ed, Dr. Vernita Mayfield, everyone. How about a virtual round of applause from our live audience? Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, podcast, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code. 
at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.